Welcome to another episode of the TDC Podcast. In this episode, I spoke with Dr. Mark Lecision, a medical health officer with Vancouver Coastal Health in British Columbia. Some of his work is in public health related to drugs, and he recently co-authored a study looking at drug checking for fentanyl at Insight, a supervised consumption facility where people can take drugs in a safer setting. The study looked at how common fentanyl is in heroin samples, as well as whether people change their behavior once once they know what their drugs contain. You can find a link to that study in the description. As always, everything TDC does, from the website, to the YouTube channel, to the podcast, is supported exclusively by donations. So support from people like you is what makes this content possible. If you want to support, you can find ways to do so at thedrugclassroom.com support. I'm here with Dr. Mark Lecision. Mark, thank you for coming on the podcast. Yeah, no problem. There was a paper that you came out with recently, and I was looking through some of your other work, and it seems like uh, you're a physician and you have a focus, it appears, on public health, and especially right now, the opioid issue. To kind of work into this topic, I was wondering if you could just kind of introduce yourself and then how, as a doctor, you decided to at least partly focus on harm reduction topics and public health related to drugs and specifically opioids. Yeah, well, uh, I'm what's called a medical health officer for Vancouver Coastal Health. So basically one of the public health officers for the Vancouver Coastal Health region. And, um, you know, when I originally trained in medicine, I trained in internal medicine and worked at one of our inner city hospitals here in Vancouver, St. Paul's Hospital. And uh, doing that internal medicine work, I saw a lot of patients who suffer from addictions uh, and who were really struggling. And I didn't feel that our sort of health system had a good way of managing them. And so I did some training in addiction medicine and then worked in that area and um, and really just got the idea that the clinical approach wasn't enough. You know, we had to change social conditions and had to work on things kind of before people came to the hospital if we were really going to impact the health of people who had um you know, serious addictions. And so then I went and did public health training and, uh, and now find myself working in public health. And of course, uh, kind of in the right place at the right time, I think, because, you know, we've declared a public health emergency here related to opioid overdoses that are caused by, uh, you know, contamination of the drug supply with fentanyl. And, uh, and I've been able to sort of combine my knowledge of addiction medicine with uh, the principles of public health practice and kind of develop some new solutions to the problem, maybe. A lot of people would think as a physician, your goal when encountering somebody who is using drugs would just be to get them off as fast as possible, you know, so it would just be to get them down to not using substances and harm reduction kind of takes a different approach. Usually things like, as we'll talk about insight, recognizing that not everybody is going to go down to no use all of a sudden, and that can't be the only medical approach. So how did you did you ever have the other perspective of you just need to get people off or and then you transition to having a more comprehensive approach, recognizing people are at different points in their lives and need different medical interventions? How has your thought process changed over time, if it has at all? Yeah, I mean, I think I was pretty lucky to be exposed to 
addiction medicine and harm reduction uh, in Vancouver um, during my training. And so as I was learning about caring for people with addictions, I was also learning about harm reduction and and uh, places like Insight were, were were being developed. So I think I always had the idea that um, you know some people would be ready to look at reducing the amount they use or, or stopping, and and other people wouldn't be. You know, big focus of the addiction medicine work I was doing then was trying to get people on opiate agonist therapy, um, you know, to prevent overdoses and relapses, and but also trying to get them into kind of recovery settings where they could work on the issues that were were causing their addictions. But I just saw that a lot of those approaches were not really working. You know, the, the people weren't supported enough in those environments or with those treatments. And so people were relapsing a lot and we were giving them, you know, complicated medical treatment with antibiotics and surgeries and, and things like that. And, you know, and then they were just coming back in a few a few weeks later because they were had relapsed or were still using. And so I think I really saw that it, although the treatments did work for some people uh, at some periods in their life, I saw that people needed harm reduction to keep them alive until they're at the point where they can get the treatment when it would work for them. And, you know, we, we have opiate agonist therapy for people with opiates, but we don't have treatments like that for people who are injecting cocaine or, or crystal meth or, or things like that. So even when we are giving the evidence-based treatments that do prevent people from uh, overdosing and relapsing and things like that, they still may need harm reduction because we can't provide those treatments for all drugs. And mm-hmm. so, you know, we really need to provide them for people because our treatments are not good enough yet. You know, maybe at, at some point in society we'll have addiction treatments that are 100% effective for everyone, but um, we're definitely not there yet. So in the meantime, we need to provide harm reduction. So your study looking at drug checking specifically for fentanyl occurred in Insight and in Vancouver. How has, I mean, the opioid crisis, whatever you want to call it, this spike in opioid-related overdose deaths, it's affected all of North America, but how has Vancouver specifically been affected? And then can you introduce us to what Insight is? Because as an American, we still, although we're hearing more about Insight now that there's talk of having supervised consumption facilities, we we don't have any that are operational yet, I don't believe. So Insight is kind of what a lot of people turn to as an example of that model. I think we've been pretty uh, hard hit by the opioid overdose crisis here in in British Columbia and in Vancouver. 2016, we did declare a provincial public health emergency here because of the problem. And uh, if we look across our province, uh, the problem is most acute in Vancouver and particularly in the downtown east side neighborhood of Vancouver, where we have a kind of high concentration of people who use injection drugs. And, you know, back in the 90s, we actually declared a public health emergency in the downtown east side as well. And it was related to an epidemic of HIV, but also overdoses that was occurring in the downtown east side. And it's that declaration that led, in fact, to the creation of Insight. Um, It was those public discussions about how to kind of address this problem and that people realized that it wasn't enough to just have prevention and law enforcement and treatment is that we needed a harm reduction as well. So that's how Insight came to be. And so Insight is a supervised injection site, or that's what it was called at the time. Now it's actually called a supervised consumption site because we allow other forms of consumption of drugs there. But uh, it's a supervised injection site where people can come and bring drugs that they've obtained and use them on site. Uh, And there are nurses and other clinical staff who can respond to overdoses if they occur, can also help them access treatment services and healthcare services and other things. And, you know, it's been a a very successful intervention. It's, uh, you know, been going for over 15 years now. When it was created, it, it was really created under a model that we needed to evaluate it. Uh, really well in this North American context, basically so that there could be other sites like this in North America because we knew they would be needed. And unfortunately, 
until recently, there hasn't been a lot of these sites. But now I think with the, the overdose crisis, it's really uh, prompting, you know, cities across North America to consider them. And, and certainly across Canada, now there's, you know, more than 20 of them that have probably opened. Opioid is a really broad category. So when it said opioid crisis, I think a lot of people are either thinking of heroin or they're thinking of the prescription pill element. But as your study showed, fentanyl is really one of the biggest elements. How much of a contributor is illicitly sourced fentanyl to the deaths that are occurring? Yeah, well, here in British Columbia, it is the cause. We haven't seen increases in rates of addiction or in addiction to opioids in general. What we have seen is that the illicit drugs are contaminated with illicitly manufactured fentanyl. And so uh, because of that, uh, you know, myself and others sort of went looking for technologies that could detect fentanyl because we thought, well, if people know that there is fentanyl in their drugs, they might take action to protect themselves. And so that was kind of the the idea of our drug checking study. I, I realized we had a real opportunity with Insight because Insight possesses an exemption to our federal drug laws that allows people to possess drugs in that environment. And so we found a, an easy-to-use technology that we could give them, these fentanyl test strips, and taught them how to use them and said, well, at Insight, you can test your drugs for fentanyl. And then, you know, we studied what happened. And what basically what we saw is that people who got positive results with the fentanyl test strips were 10 times more likely to reduce the dose of drugs they're going to take. And, you know, when you have drugs that are too potent, if you take a lower dose, it's a there's a less chance that you're going to overdose. And in fact, we saw in our study that of the people that reduced their dose in this way, they were less likely to overdose. So it showed us that drug checking can be a harm reduction intervention that can prevent overdoses. And it goes against having any reduction, even if it's a minority overall of the percentage of users who choose to both check their drugs and change their behavior after the fact that it's any notable portion kind of goes against, I think, a, the common perception of people with addiction just recklessly using drugs and having almost no care for their physical safety, especially when they get into substances like heroin, which we just associate with. Like if you're in an act of addiction to that substance, you are just controlled by the drug. And the fact that you're seeing behavior changes, even if it's not I'm not going to take it, even if it's just I'm going to reduce my dose because the point of the drug use is not to die. That kind of doesn't fit with the usual model. Can you just comment on how that goes against how a lot of people view somebody who is using opioids? Yeah, I mean, we're basically operating under the assumption that the more information people have about the risks that they're taking, the better they can make decisions to protect themselves. And there is a lot of things people can do to protect themselves. In our study, we looked at reducing the dose. We also looked at drug disposal. And we didn't find that in the environment we were offer offering this drug checking service that people disposed of their drugs. But Insight is actually a safe environment to consume even drugs contaminated with fentanyl because nobody's ever died at Insight of an overdose. But you know, out in the community, there is other things people can do. You know, we don't want people to use drugs alone. So if people test their drugs and find out there's fentanyl in them, well, maybe they won't use alone that time, you know, or maybe they'll leave the door to their room open so that if they have an overdose, somebody will notice, um, you know, and be able to get in and help them. Maybe they'll start coming to Insight when they realize that their drugs are routinely contaminated. They're, they're going to say, okay, well, maybe maybe I can't keep using like this in an alley. I need to go to a place that where they can supervise me. So we are hoping that drug checking will change people's behaviors, even in small ways. And, you know, we studied a few of those ways at Insight. But, you know, as we do more drug checking projects, we're, we're looking to see other ways that people will change their behavior. 
is the fact that there have been no deaths in the facility related to there really not being overdoses or that there are a fair number of overdoses, but they're readily reversed by naloxone. Is there a pretty high rate of having to use naloxone? Yeah, no, there are definitely overdoses at the facility. It's just that, uh, you know, when overdoses are witnessed, people can attend to them, give naloxone, you know, call an ambulance if necessary, but they're not difficult health problems to solve. But, you know, when people have overdoses alone, um, you know, behind closed doors, and then they're not found, well, then that's a dangerous situation. The rate at which fentanyl was found in this study was really concerning. I mean, it was, I think it was like 80% of the samples that were tested. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that was too surprising to us at the time because what we were finding in overdose deaths is that about 80% of them were tested positive for fentanyl. So we, we knew that drugs were sort of heavily contaminated uh, in our area, and this sort of uh, confirmed it. And it was very similar to, to data that police were getting at the same time from seizures of drugs. So yeah, it was definitely a concerning number, but it wasn't surprising to those of us who kind of following the situation closely. And I guess in the area, at least, if those numbers had been floating around and just users talking to each other and knowing what's happening. Users must be kind of aware that fentanyl is definitely a big issue right now. Has there been any witnessing at Insight or other places of users adjusting their own usage because they bought heroin, but they know it could very well be something else? Definitely during this crisis, we've uh, we, we, we've seen that uh, Insight wasn't en- enough. It, had, it was very busy before this crisis, and, and now the demand for this type of service really exploded. And so uh, in Vancouver Coastal Health, we've opened seven overdose prevention sites, which are sort of low-barrier supervised injection sites that are run in conjunction with community partners where we offer supervised consumption services. Uh, and so there's seven of them that have opened, you know, in Vancouver since the beginning of this crisis. And some of them are, are you know, in the downtown east side, only blocks away from, from Insight. So definitely people have seen the need in this crisis to use supervised consumption services because they know that when they use them, they're not going to die. Is it pretty easy for people to access as users naloxone? I know around here it's pretty expensive. So even if you can get access to it, a lot of users would not be walking around with it. Insight would obviously provide a way for people to use in a setting where naloxone is a available. But for users themselves, what's the status of that? Yeah, well, we were pretty lucky in um, British Columbia in 2012, like the first year that we ever detected fentanyl in British Columbia to have the beginning of a provincial take-home naloxone program. And so that's been running since 2012. You know, I think last year over 60,000 kits were, were, were distributed. So, you know, we have a big take-home naloxone program with many community sites where people uh, can get the kits, can get training. We also have a, a different type of um, kit that's given to facilities so that staff who work at facilities that see clients who might be using drugs have access to naloxone as well. And both of these types of um, kits are free and, and, and are distributed across our province. So uh, I'd say access to naloxone is pretty good here. Opioids are both pretty easy to have an overdose that's problematic on compared to some drugs, um, especially with the way that people use opioids. And it just so happens that there's this really easy reversal drug, which does not exist for all substances. Although it's terrible this crisis is occurring, it's we're kind of lucky that naloxone exists. I mean, it, it must make handling these situations pretty straightforward. Even a user could handle effectively an overdose that they're witnessing. And it's that simple. It's just applying another drug and you get rid of the issue. Yeah. And in fact, how easy it is to use naloxone is what led to these overdose prevention sites because, you know, once we had trained people in how to use naloxone and given them kits, community activists said, well, 
we're going to supervise injections. And they set up pop-up supervised injection sites where they would just put up a tent and a desk and a chair. And, and they said, we're going to supervise our friends injecting. And, you know, initially these were considered to be illegal uh you know, sites, and there was a big sort of debate about them. But finally, we realized that sites like this can prevent overdoses, and and they should be allowed to prevent overdoses in this way. And so that's why our Minister of Health at the time issued this order that allowed us to create overdose prevention sites. And and we have more than 20 of them now uh, in the province. They're they're considered illegal from the federal government's point of view, although now they're creating ways to make them legal. But we saw the need to have them, and we couldn't go through the process that we went through with Insight to create it and get the necessary approvals. We needed the sites immediately, and the community had the capacity to deliver these services. And and so now they're delivering those services. And at most of these overdose prevention sites, uh, it's not nurses that are reversing overdoses. It's trained People with lived experience or what we call peers who um, who are administering naloxone, administering oxygen in some cases and using bag valve masks to uh, rescue their peers when they have overdoses. The presence of peers seems like it would be pretty helpful. I One of the things, because I haven't had any experience going into any of these facilities, but I know they're not meant to be super medicalized, but the fact that it's still, you're going to a facility specifically to use your, your drugs, like if you're, especially if you're not homeless, I can imagine people, even though it's safer to use at Insight, there's a hesitation to be basically going to a medical setting to take their drugs. It just doesn't fit into how a lot of people want to use. Is that an issue? Yeah, I mean, definitely we've seen people using the overdose prevention sites who have never used Insight, even though they may live on the same block as Insight. You know, we've tried to make Insight a very inviting environment for people who use drugs, but because of the you know, requirements we have to have to have this exemption, then, you know, cameras have to go in and security systems and, and, and things like that. So, you know, what's resulted is an environment that's not necessarily welcoming for all people who use drugs. And um, so these overdose prevention sites have been much lower barrier sites because they are developed by peers, they're run by peers, they're, you know, their peers work there. So people have found them more inviting to use, or some people have. I mean, people continue to use Insight as well. In other studies where they've asked users how likely they are to use or how interested they are in using drug checking and harm reduction tools like that, the rate seems to be much higher than what was seen in the actual setting of being offered drug checking and insight, I believe the rate of like, was it being offered to kind of everybody who went through during the study period, and then whoever wanted to engage could engage? Yeah, I mean, you have to remember that we did this study at Insight for a few reasons. Like the first reason was because we could legally offer drug checking there. It was the only place that we could offer it legally. And then we also offered it there because we didn't know how well the strips worked for this purpose. They were designed to test urine for fentanyl and we were using them in a different way. And so we didn't know all of the test properties, but we felt it would be safe to offer them at Insight because we could reverse every overdose that happened there. And we could also sort of observe people using the strips, see if they change their behavior and then see if they have an overdose. So it was a useful environment to to kind of test the hypothesis of whether these strips could be a harm reduction device. But we knew that it wasn't really the place where it would have the most impact. The motivation even to check your drugs at Insight is is questionable because everybody knows that they can survive an overdose there. You know, so and in fact, during the study, we saw that a lot of people check their drugs after they use them. Mm. And um, which sort of surprised us at Just first, out of but curiosity. 
Yeah, I mean, well, they we're not sure exactly why, but we were surprised to see more people checking after than mm-hmm. before, and and I think it is out of curiosity. You know, they've just had an overdose. Now they want to explain it, but we thought it was still useful information for them to have because they may have more of those drugs in their pocket, and they may maybe trying to decide, well, should I come back to Insight tonight, or you know, like you know, why did this overdose happen to me? So we thought it was it was it was good information, but you know, we are hoping to move drug checking into other environments where the uptake might be bigger. We, we've also noticed as we've continued to kind of develop our drug checking projects, as we use newer technologies that provide different types of, of information, we get we get more uptake in the drug checking services. How expensive or inexpensive is it for a user to acquire this kind of drug checking, the using the strips on their own? Well, I mean, the strips are not expensive. They're about a dollar each. But currently, the strips are not really being sold to the public, at least in Canada. You know, they're licensed as a medical device and sold to health authorities for testing urine. And then there isn't a lot of them being sold in other ways. I think companies that develop this type of technologies are concerned about how they might be used and then would they be liable for any, you know, errors that, that happened and false information that's given. And so so they've been reluctant to sell them to the public. But we've been happy to use them as part of drug checking programs where we're letting people know about the limitations, we're monitoring their effectiveness, and we're comparing you know how how they're working, so we feel we can get get around some of these liability concerns. But that's more difficult for the company. Is there an issue with false negatives, at least for fentanyl itself? Well, I mean, you know, this is a one dollar piece of technology. It's not perfect. There has been some studies that that looked at how you know the sensitivity and specificity of the devices, and, and it turns out it's actually very good. You know, considering that this is a one dollar piece of equipment, but uh, but I mean. It, it can be wrong in some circumstances. And so we do warn people that, you know, just because you're using drug checking doesn't mean you don't use other harm reduction measures too. You know, just because you drug check doesn't mean you use alone in a room with a locked door. You know, you've, you've got to kind of combine these these harm reduction measures. But, um, you know, in most of the time, the, the strips give the, the, the correct response. That kind of test is really selective to an individual drug. So does BC have an issue with analogs? And how do the strips work with the analogs? Yeah, I mean, um, I think fentanyl is mostly what's out there, but we've seen lots of different analogs. And when we first started using the strips, we were not confident that they would uh, cross-react with any of the analogs. Uh, As we've kind of moved ahead with this project and as the company that makes the strips, that that, um, they do cross-react with most of the analogs uh, to varying degrees. So mostly we are finding that they they do detect the analogs they don't tell you which analog it is but they'll test positive for that too but you know the strips are quite limited and so now we're using the fentanyl test strips in combination with the infrared spectrometer and the spectrometer can really tell us what are the different components in the drug mixture you know for instance if somebody's bought heroin is heroin present uh you know what are the cutting agents what are other contaminants that might be in the drug and then it has some trouble detecting substances that are in very low proportions of the mix. And fentanyl is sometimes one of those drugs. And so we use it with the fentanyl test strips. And then we can give people a pretty complete picture of what's in this drug mixture that they're going to take. Uh, the spectrometer could also tell you what is the proportion of the different substances as long as enough of them are present. And, you know, we are seeing samples where there, there's enough fentanyl for the spectrometer to detect it and to tell you this is 30% of the mix. And we know that's, for instance, a sample that's about 10 times too strong. Uh, and so it, you know, is very likely to cause an overdose. So now we're starting to, with using new technologies, be able to give people 
more complete and more useful information. You've been working in this field longer than this current crisis. How have things changed going from what was presumably predominantly heroin to this sudden emergence of now you have to worry about, and you always had to worry about purity before and cutting agents and things that could cause bodily harm in the substance, but now you have to worry about this other opioid, which I don't think was a big factor before. So how has kind of working in this field changed over the past five or so years? Yeah, well, I think, you know, we, we were always aware that there was no quality control in the illicit drug market. But I think now we've been acutely aware just of how dangerous substances can be, you know, and how dangerous it is when, when people are receiving an unknown dose of an unknown drug. Like that's a situation that is you know, that's just almost always going to lead to overdose. And and so, um, you know, I, I think that's partly what, what is motivating us also to create these drug checking programs, not only for the current moment where there's this one particular contaminant or one class of contaminants that's affecting the drug supply, but for the future too, as new contaminants come into the drug supply, we want to be able to see them early and then know, you know, give people harm reduction advice and understand where they are and, and, and how they could affect people. So that's sort of the, the point of, of putting these drug checking technologies and services, you know, out in different environments where people are using drugs at music festivals or at parties and nightclubs and, and things like that. Because although, you know, we're not seeing a lot of fentanyl contamination in those drugs right now, we can, we might, we might see problems in the future. Yeah. And even if it's not an opioid contamination and say the MDMA market, it's still pretty common to have drug checking be useful for detecting other substances, cathinones, these other contaminants or, or sort of replacement drugs that could be more dangerous or the dosing could be different. So it seems when you consider all these things and then fentanyl in this crisis is a great example of it. It seems like if you took out the purity fluctuations and the misrepresentation from this whole issue, drug addiction would be causing or drug use would be causing substantially less harm. Do you think that's the case? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's one of the reasons why uh, in public health, at least in Canada, we, we advocate for legalization and regulation of the drug supply. You know, if we were facing a problem like this in the you know, in the in the food sector or in you know the consumer product sector, you know there was some product that was contaminated and causing death. Well, that product would be identified, it would be recalled, it would be off the shelf, shelves within days, and this problem would be solved. But you know, here where we don't control the market, uh, it's allowed to kind of wreak havoc across society, and nobody can seem to stop it. It's obvious from a medical perspective that is useful. How are politicians and and the public responding to studies like this and other? showing one that harm reduction is useful to that decrim or legalization of the supply would probably have a positive effect. I mean, it's, it's sort of an obvious thing, but it also goes against how people have often viewed this topic. Like a you know, this is, yeah, I mean, th this is one of, I think, the real uh, utilities of, of drug checking is, is that it does show just how contaminated the drug supply is, how dangerous it is. And I think it does provide some of the rationale for why we need to consider a regulated supply. So even if drug checking doesn't solve the fentanyl crisis in terms of it giving everybody the right information and they you know stop having overdoses, I'm hoping it will provide more of the rationale for 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 why we need to regulate the drug supply. You know, and then we're also legalizing and regulating cannabis right now in Canada. And so I hope this will show the public and politicians that we can do this. We, we can take an illegal drug uh, that's unregulated and that, you know, may have contained pesticides, synthetic cannabinoids, other things that were potentially harming people. And we can start producing it ourselves and produce it in a safe way and then focus on harm reduction in the population. Yeah. And you mentioned opioid agonist and replacement therapies earlier 
earlier, what would you say, I mean, drug checking is clearly important, but what would you say are sort of the best tools to confront this? And and that might change under the, if you were to get rid of prohibition, it would probably change what is most important because some of these issues would just disappear. But like right now, what should be the biggest focus? Yeah, well, I mean, we take this four pillars approach, right? Like we need to work on preventing addiction and problematic substance use. And, you know, that's done in schools and in early childhood environments and, and things like that. We need to have harm reduction, supervised consumption sites, take home naloxone programs, drug checking. But we also need to provide treatment for people who have serious addictions that are suffering, you know, medical co- consequences. And I think the the most important treatment we've seen here is opiate agonist therapy. And we need sort of more options for that. You know, we have methadone, we have suboxone. Now we're starting to use slow release oral morphine, you know, but there's other opiates that could also be used for substitution. We're using injectables, uh, heroin, hydromorphone in certain clinics here in, in Vancouver. And we're trying to expand those options so that people can find the right option that will help them. And then, you know, that needs to be supported by recovery services too, because sometimes not just the medication is not enough. People need to kind of look at the issues that are driving their uh, their addictions and uh, and kind of work them out. There's always some backlash I see even from users who've gotten off or have changed their substance use over time against agonist therapy, just viewing it as like a replacement addiction and it's not really getting to the root of anything. What would you respond to that? Because there's that argument even from users at at times who have kind of their own position, though I don't think it's the majority of users. And then from the public, I often see that opinion where, oh, you're just trading a drug for another. But at the same time, it does appear in the context of opioids, these are basically the most effective treatments they have. uh, They're much stickier for getting people to, to stay with them, and they do seem to reduce the use of other illicit opioids. So how would you respond to that opposition of you're just trading drugs, so you're not really doing much. Yeah, well, I mean, I think every person is going to be in a different situation, and every person is going to need to be on, you know, these replacement therapies for different amounts of time. But, you know, the real problems in addiction come from, you know, disconnection with your family, from loss of employment, from loss of relationships, crime, things like that. And opiate agonist therapy, you know, can allow people to reconnect with their family, to build relationships again, to get stable work, uh, to find housing, uh, to stop committing crime. It can it can fix all of the problems of addiction. And so those are the things that, that we should focus on because those are the things we want to eliminate. And then once people are stable and they have relationships and jobs and homes and, and, and the stuff that makes them resilient, then they, they could consider at some point weaning themselves off. But at the moment, because of how dangerous the drug supply is and how and how dangerous a relapse might be, we're really advising people not to wean off right now. In the past, we might have said, you know, maybe you just need to be on opiate agonist therapy for a few years, but now the drug supply is too dangerous for you to risk relapsing, you know, having maybe lost some tolerance and then and 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 then really being at risk of a fatal overdose. So, uh, you know, we think the abstinence-based therapies in the context of this, you know, fentanyl-driven crisis are really not the solution. Uh, it's these replacement therapies that will will get people through this crisis. You know, maybe at some point in the future, if if fentanyl is not in the drug supply, then maybe the situation will be different. But but right now is not the time uh, to try to be abstinent. We believe there's good research showing how high the overdose risk is when people have been abstinent, whether it's from prison or rehab or, you know, any setting like that where their tolerance
tolerance changes, I can only imagine the interaction with the presence of fentanyl is just you could really die from from one dose of something after you've been abstinent for any amount of time, which is kind of scary and not something you would have seen nearly as often like 10 years ago. I would yeah, think. absolutely. And it and it's um it's sort of changing our entire system for caring for people who have addiction because, you know, it, it's just revealing how often people do relapse after going to detox or, uh, you know, going through residential treatment and things like that, or, or even while they're at residential treatment. And, you know, the system is, is having to change because now when somebody relapses, they don't just relapse, they might have a fatal overdose. So, you know, the providers of these treatments are having to really uh, kind of look at how they're providing services and, 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 and make sure they're safe. What does happen with people who are going to Insight or in another setting, if they say have an overdose and emergency medical services provide naloxone, is there any attempt to shuttle people into some kind of treatment? Or I know like an Insight, I, I believe I was reading that they try not to push treatment because they want it to be as welcoming as possible. But also as a, you know, if you're a physician working there, you do want to see people not using illicitly sourced drugs as much as possible. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the research on Insights shows that people who it like people who attend Insight are more likely to seek addiction treatment compared to drug users that don't attend Insight. So even though Insight is not designed as a addiction treatment intervention, it does encourage people to seek treatment. And I think it's because Insight helps stabilize them and helps them, you know, get contact with healthcare and with social services and things like that and, and gets them into a place where they, they can, can, you know, consider treatment. But, um, one of the other things we've implemented recently is an overdose outreach team. And so, you know, we know the people that are having overdoses and ending up in the emergency room are at high risk for dying because they're already having overdoses. And so we wanted to make sure that those people um, can be followed up and get connected either with their, you know, opiate agonist therapy provider or with their, you know, get into housing and things like that. And and uh, we were finding that it, that wasn't really happening from our overdose or from our emergency rooms. And so we've created a team of outreach workers and social workers that's very good at finding people, you know, after they've been in the emergency room and, and helps them get connected to their family doctor or their, you know, addiction treatment provider or gets them into some housing or something like that so that we can try to prevent that second overdose that uh, that could be fatal. Is it even possible? I know in I've heard about like drug markets in, say, Philadelphia, where there's a lot of users are using supplies that are branded in some way, and, and people kind of know specific supplies. And therefore, you could potentially implement warnings when a supply is tested and known to be contaminated, although the contamination is so high, I'm not sure it would even be that relevant in Vancouver. But is that a thing in the drug market there where you could potentially test drugs and then provide public service announcements saying a certain supply is contaminated? I know that's that is helpful in, say, MDMA, but the tablet format helps with identifying a batch as bad. I'm not sure how easily you could do that for heroin. I don't know if there's any relevance to yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we, we absolutely do this. We have... Um a series of harm reduction alert posters that we post at harm reduction supply distribution points. And we've designed these posters in, in con collaboration with people who use drugs. So they have pictures on it. If possible, they contain harm reduction messages, not abstinence messages. They have dates uh, by which they should be posted and removed on them. And um, and then, you know, a description of, of the substance and what, what it will do. We also have something called the Radar Network, which is a anonymous text-based service that people can sign up for uh, so that they can receive alerts about 
contaminated drugs, but they could also provide notifications of uh, substances. So if somebody sees their friend take a substance that looked like this and they saw an unusual overdose, they could report that in through the radar network. And then we would share it with other members of the network. And we get a lot of the information that's shared both through the radar network and the harm reduction alert posters from our drug checking projects because our drug checking technologists are able to see the substance. They can take a picture of it. They test it so they know what's in it. Uh, the person might be using it inside and then we can actually see if they have an overdose uh, and or describe the overdose features if, it, if they have it. And so we can share all that information sort of in real time uh, with people who use drugs. Um, you know, we're still in the process of evaluating that radar network, so we don't know who is participating in that network. We know it's over 500 people now, but, you know, and we do get reports through through that system and we share them back out. So uh, we are trying to have, you know, it, along with drug checking, it is alerting. And because uh, we know that not everybody is using drug checking, so we want to sort of spread the information that we're getting from drug checking to the people that could use it. Describing the details of a specific overdose brings to mind some reports of there being naloxone resistant or hard to treat overdoses. Is that a thing that is... It's hard to tell sometimes with the media reporting on this if something is just a single incidence and then it's talked about as though it's really common or if it really is common. But we hear both about overdoses being harder to treat and about dependencies producing more substantial withdrawal effects than are typically seen from heroin. Do you know that to be common? Well, I mean, through the evaluation of our provincial take-home naloxone program, we, we have seen over the years that in the community, it does take uh, more doses of naloxone to reverse overdoses. And as a result, our take-home naloxone kits, which used to have only two vials of naloxone in them, now contain three. And, uh, you know, the latest evaluation showed that three vials is enough to reverse something like 95% of community overdoses. And, you know, often at community overdoses, there'll be multiple kits of naloxone. So we, you know, they've, they've left it with, with three vials. But so, so it does appear that, you know, more naloxone does appear to be needed now than, than in the past, but it does not appear that opiate overdoses are resistant to naloxone. One of the other things we've been able to kind of observe at Insight specifically because we have clinical staff observing overdoses there is just the change in overdose presentations that has arisen specifically because of fentanyl. You know, fentanyl, when it's used in the operating room, can cause things like chest wall rigidity and jaw rigidity. It can cause flailing of limbs. And this has all been documented sort of in the anesthesia literature. But now we've been able to observe these presentations at places like Insight and document that they're happening more and more in the community. And so we've tried to publish some some work on that too, to make people aware that opiate overdoses can look different now because they're being caused by fentanyl, which has some of these uh, unusual overdose features like rigidity and flailing. Is there an idea of why that's the case? Potent differs, but fentanyl is primarily operating in, in mostly the same way as diamorphine. So is there an idea of why this differs? Uh, I, I think people only have hypotheses, but it's seen specifically with fentanyl and not with other opioids. Yeah, I can imagine that complicating things. And also diagnostically, if somebody is unconscious, but they're presenting with something like flailing, it's it's going to be not as clearly, oh, that's the heroin slash you know, fentanyl overdose. If you're not aware of what to expect, I would think clinically people are usually trained to identify opioid overdoses differently than that. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that's why we're trying to get that message out because we do find, uh, yeah, people don't think the flailing has to do with the, the opioid overdose. And so, and even at Insight initially, they didn't think that either until they realized that as this person was flailing their limbs, their lips were becoming blue, you know, and it turns out that this flailing behavior does actually respond to naloxone as does the rigidity. So it kind of emphasizes the need to, to kind of deliver that treatment. Um, but yeah, we have to make sure that people understand that that's part of an, or can be part of an opiate overdose presentation. To wrap this up, can you, if there are any resources that you recommend people going to for learning about this issue and naloxone or drug checking or any of these harm reduction interventions, um, if you happen to be aware of any good things that people can turn to or anything personally that you would like people to look up? Yeah, well, I mean, we have some resources about drug checking and our drug checking services on our Vancouver Coastal Health website. We're also doing a lot of this work on drug checking in partnership with the BC Center on Substance Use, and uh, they're producing drug checking uh, reports on a regular basis to kind of, you know, show the degree of contamination kind of in the, the drug supply in British Columbia as we develop these drug checking services and sites. Uh, they've also done some reviews of drug checking technologies that are on their website. Yeah, so we're, we're really trying to get other people out there to develop uh, try developing drug checking services and collect data and, and, and let us see like what is what are the drugs like where, where, where you are and what technologies are you finding useful because you know we've picked a couple of technologies but uh, I'm sure there are other technologies that can also be useful we want to see the results people can get from them and you know then as a community we'll we'll get better at offering this service. I saw you've done a couple papers on this topic. What is your personal trajectory? Where are you kind of looking to the future of drug checking and these interventions? You know, I, I'm looking for them to become just part of our general suite of harm reduction services that we offer to a variety of drug using populations. You know, I mean, I, I'd like to see us come <laughs> one day to a situation where there's no longer a need to offer drug checking because uh, the substances people are using are being pr produced in a, in a in a regulated manner. And then, you know, we won't need to offer services like this. Great. Well, I appreciate Appreciate you coming on and the information was very interesting and I'll try to link to any useful uh, resources on this. So thank you. Okay, no problem. Thanks a lot.